At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Thanks for tuning into our series, The Follower's Trail Guide, Navigating the Path of Jesus, where we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? As we walk through Jesus' farewell discourse to His followers in the book of John, we'll learn to follow in the steps of Christ as He marks out the way of discipleship for us. Thank you, Matt and team, for leading us in song this morning. If you have your Bibles, please open them with me to John chapter 16. We'll be in verses 16 through 24 this morning. John chapter 16, verses 16 through 24. These are the words of God. Jesus speaking says, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us, A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while? And you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also... You have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Father in heaven, we pray now that as your word is proclaimed, that you would speak that you would use your servant here now to encourage your people. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thomas Watson, a 17th century English preacher, once said, Joy is a delightful passion. It is contrary to sorrow, which is the unrest of the mind, where the heart is perplexed and cast down, but joy is a sweet and pleasant affection that eases the mind, thus exhilarating and comforting the spirit. Upon mentioning the word joy, I'm sure you each had someone who instantly came to your mind. We all know someone who exhibits this kind of joy, this kind of sweet and pleasant affection that seems to attract others and draw them in like bugs to a light. Despite others being drawn in by this other person's joy, it might drive you a little bit crazy if you're honest. Like, how in the world, it's driving you mad trying to think, how in the world can you say that God is good in the midst of such a difficult circumstance? This doesn't make any sense at all. I, frankly, I think as much as their joy might bother you and kind of irk you a little bit, there's also something that wells up within you that says, that's exactly what I want. I think if we're honest, the only reason why that other person's joy drive you crazy is because they have it and you don't and you long for that kind of joy. Now, to be clear, I'm not speaking of happiness. 
We've all experienced happiness at one point or another. Happiness is kind of this temporal status of cheerfulness that comes maybe as a result of good news like a job promotion, but happiness fades just as quickly realizing I actually have to go back to work. We all know this kind of temporal status of happiness that comes one minute and leaves the next, but this is not what Watson's referring to here. Thomas Watson is speaking of a joy that doesn't waver from situation to situation because it doesn't depend upon our situations. The joy that we can experience in Christ comes from the certainty and hope that we have in him who never changes. So as you're reflecting, let me ask, do you have this kind of joy, a sweet and pleasant affection that eases your mind? Do you have a kind of joy that transcends your circumstances and causes you actually to rejoice in the face of giants? Well, this morning as we continue our sermon series, The Follower's Trail Guide, it's a study through John 13 through 16, often referred to as the farewell discourse. In these chapters, Jesus is bidding his disciples farewell. He's telling them, I'm leaving you. In light of my absence, this is how you're to follow me. He pulls away from his public ministry to be with his disciples one last time before he's ultimately betrayed, arrested, and crucified. And again, because he knows that he will leave them soon, he instructs them as to how they are to continue to follow him in his absence. And as we now look at his word this morning... As he instructs his disciples, there's much that we too can learn about navigating the path of Jesus as we seek to follow him faithfully. Now, up until this point in John chapter 16, Jesus has discussed quite a few things, so I'll rehearse a few by way of reminder. In chapter 13, he discussed discussed love's foundational role in the life of his disciples. He goes as far as to say that all people everywhere will definitively know whether you are a disciple of mine or not, simply if you have love for one another. In verse 14, he encourages his disciples that the key to remaining faithful to him in the face of adversity, in the face of of trials and tribulation, is by pursuing him and becoming obedient to what he has commanded. Finally, in, in chapter 15, he finishes by saying that it is paramount, it is foundational to the life of his disciples that they must abide in him and be connected to him if there's any hope of bearing any fruit whatsoever, if there's any hope of overcoming sin, growing in love for one another, facing adversity with joy, we have to be connected to Christ because apart from him, we can do absolutely nothing. However, notwithstanding all this instruction that he's given to them, his disciples are still struggling. They're still discouraged, disappointed, and frankly, they're terrified at what lies ahead. He shared much of them that he was going to be leaving, and where he is going, they cannot yet come. Naturally, as a result of their teacher and their friend, the one that they've left all of their livelihood for, telling them that he was leaving them, this has caused sorrow to to flood and consume their hearts. And his disciples are unsurprisingly disoriented. They're filled with sorrow. They're filled with confusion. They're experiencing the sorrow that Thomas Watson said causes the unrest of the mind and their hearts to be perplexed and cast down. However, despite these few hours of discourse being one of the most discouraging times in the life of the disciples, Jesus is actually seeking to encourage them by telling them that they will soon experience joy. Jesus engages them in the pit of their sorrow and unrest 
to give them joy and contentment. And the precious precious gospel truth that we'll see in our text this morning is that the way of Jesus leads to full joy. The way of Jesus leads to full joy. In other words, the only way to experience authentic, lasting, fixed, and transcendent hope is only found in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, as we walk our way through the text, I want to we kind of have to ask ourselves, okay, if it's true that the way of Jesus does lead to full joy, what exactly is on this way to that full joy? Is this way towards joy in Christ one that has been freshly paved? No potholes, no construction, no roadblocks, no traffic. Unfortunately, as we see in the life of his disciples here, the road to lasting joy includes a considerable amount of perplexing sorrow. As a result of the perplexing sorrow that his disciples are soon to experience in just a few short hours, we too learn that in light of that, we are to continue to follow Jesus in our perplexing sorrow. Look with me, look with me at verses 16 through 20. Jesus says this, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us, A little while you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Now, there's much debate as to what this a little while reference in verses 16 is referring to. When Jesus says, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. I'm persuaded, though, to think that Jesus is speaking here of his soon death and resurrection. In other words, the disciples would see him no longer because in just a few short hours from him saying this, he was going to be betrayed, arrested, and crucified, and that would cause them to see him no longer when he is dead. However, they would see him again when he is resurrected from the dead as he had promised them for the last three years of his earthly ministry. Although I think there certainly can be double meanings intended here, I think that viewing this as his death and resurrection is the most natural reading of the text, and I hope to make that clear as we work through it. So for you and I to feel the gravity of what Jesus is saying and the the sorrow that has consumed his disciples when he said, a little while you will see me no longer, we have to put ourselves in the disciples' sandals. We have to sit at this table with Jesus and his disciples to understand this immense weight of sorrow that would soon crush their spirits. Uh, We have the fortunate privilege, as we've celebrated communion this morning, to be on the other side of not only Jesus' death and what it accomplished for us, but also the resurrection. We can sometimes read the New Testament and think, guys, come on, cheer up, right? Everything's okay. Don't you know that Jesus has overcome death and that he's alive now? Well, no, they didn't. In fact, they didn't even have such a category for an event like that. For his disciples to believe that the Messiah, that the Savior of God's people, that the one who is supposed to come and conquer their enemies would die is simply incomprehensible. 
This is not even something that has ever crossed their mind, nor would it ever. We see this displayed in chapter 13 and 14 when Peter says to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? He's desperately grasping for any thread of hope, and he goes on to quite daringly proclaim to Jesus, I will lay down my life for you so that you won't leave us, Jesus. Please stay with us. Thomas, in a like manner, yet far more tempered than Peter, says, Lord, we don't even know where you're going, so how can we know the way to where you're going? The reason for their sorrow was, yes, absolutely because Jesus was leaving them, but it was also a result of them misunderstanding what he'd been telling them for the last few years. You see, just two chapters prior, Jesus said, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced that I said I was leaving and going to the Father. In other words, if you had listened to my teachings for the last three years, specifically the ones that I said I was going to die, but I will be resurrected and be seated at God's right hand, you would have rejoiced at this. However, again, we see that they are not rejoicing, but they're perplexed, and they're full of sorrow. In verse 17, the disciples begin to question with one another, what is this that he's saying to us? And again in verse 18, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. They had no category for such an event that Jesus would be leaving them. However, they shouldn't be confused. As I mentioned, the fact that Jesus would be leaving them is precisely what he had been telling them for years. Listen to Mark 9, 30 and 32 to see this played out. Mark chapter 9, it says that Jesus and his disciples went on from there and they passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he is raised, after three days, he will rise. I want you to note here that Jesus has plainly taught his disciples, I'm going to be killed, but after I am killed, I will be resurrected from the dead. I don't think you can get more clear than this, right? However, despite this plain teaching, verse 32 says they didn't understand what he was saying and they were afraid to ask him. So as we return to John 16, we see this exact situation played out yet again in the life of his disciples in real time. Instead of taking their sorrow and their confusion to Jesus to have him clarify, they began to discuss and conspire amongst themselves. And I'm sure this saying, John, what do you think? Well, Peter, what do you think? Andrew, what did you think about that? This conspiring with one another as to what Jesus meant, I think poured gasoline on their already lit confusion causing fear and anxiety to spread like wildfire and burn their hearts from within. Jesus, though, is not unaware of their inner turmoil that has inflamed their hearts as a result of what he's just stated. And though, again, they were afraid and they didn't ask him directly, he's profoundly aware of their unrest and he enters into their confusion, seeking to bring order to their chaotic situation and to put their minds at ease. Now, the way Jesus does that is really odd. In verse 20, he makes it clear by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. How does that help us? How does that bring rest and order to my chaos, Jesus? It seems like you just threw the whole gas station at me and lit my anxiety ablaze even more. But this was intentional. Jesus pulls no punches, nor does he mince words. He tells them plainly that sorrow is in front of you, but joy is on the horizon. 
And you cannot avoid this sorrow to get to the joy. You must pass through the sorrow that's in front of you. The impending dismay and sadness that his disciples will soon experience is crucial to their spiritual formation and their walk with Jesus. By way of illustration, how many of you guys have seen the movie Finding Nemo? Okay, wonderful. In this movie, if you're unfamiliar, there's a scene in Finding Nemo where uh, Nemo is taken from these di- or he's taken from his family by divers. It's a, a, a wonderful Disney movie about uh, a little fish in the sea who gets taken by divers, and his dad, Marlin, teams up with a, a fish with short-term memory loss named Dory, and they go on this adventure to span the entire ocean to find Nemo. While on their journey, they're helped by a school of fish, if you remember the scene. These fish tell them that on their journey, they're going to experience a dark and terrifying trench. However, to get to the place in which they need to be, they cannot go over it and avoid it. They must pass through it. They're to pass through this trench and not go over it and avoid it. As Marlon and Dory approach this trench, they marvel at it with fear. There's even dead fish bones in the trench, kind of warning, this is not something that you want to go through. It's a dark and frightening unknown territory that they're being asked to go through. Instead of heeding the instruction to pass through it, Marlon becomes timid by looking at this frightening trench and he leads them around it. As a result of not passing through it but going over it, they encounter a far more frightening situation had they just passed through the trench. And I think what Jesus is instructing his disciples here to do is to follow exactly what Marlon and Dory were instructed to do. Jesus is telling his disciples here, the trench of sorrow is right in front of you. It lies ahead. But in order to experience the joy that is on the other side of this, you must pass through the trench of sorrow. But you're to do so knowing that I am with you, guiding you through it. However scary this may feel, however unknown your sorrow may be, you can trust that I am here as your good shepherd leading you through your sorrow. In the same way, through the various trials that the Lord brings our way, Jesus is calling us to pass through this unknown territory of sorrow by relying on him and trusting in him that he is there to guide us through it. I know some of what you guys are going through, some of a few of you. Frankly, if I knew the weight of sorrow that each of you felt, I would be crushed under it. But regardless of what you're going through, whether you have experienced sorrow, are currently experiencing sorrow, or will soon experience it, the encouragement from our text is not that you are to somehow avoid it. As frightening as this is, as terrifying as this is what's in front of you, we are to pass through it. However, we're not alone in this. You're to pass through knowing that Jesus is just one step ahead of you, leading you through. He is near and dear and will surely guide us through it. Maybe the trench in front of you this morning isn't a trench of sorrow, but one of profound anxiety and unrest with what the results of Tuesday hold. With election day being Tuesday, there's maybe profound unrest. Lord, what's going to happen? What, what lies ahead? I feel panicked. So let me ask, I mean, how do you feel about Tuesday? Or Wednesday? Or Thursday? Or Friday? 
or June of 2023? Are you afraid? Are you worried? Maybe anxious, concerned, fearful, maybe even questioning whether or not God is in control? To the worrisome Christian, I would the same challenge is here. You are presented with a, a trench of anxiety maybe in front of you. Engage it. Don't be afraid of it, but engage it in the same way. Engage it by passing through, knowing that Jesus is there with you, engaging you in your sorrow, and he is guiding you through it. If we allow our anxiety and worry to consume us, we can tend to act as though God is not sovereign and Christ is not raised. Wherever you find yourself this morning, whatever trench is before you, whether it be sorrow or dismay or confusion or unrest, the words of Scripture are clear. We cannot avoid it, but we must pass through it. We're to do so knowing that our Lord is near and dear to us and he will guide us through it. I want you to consider how Psalm 23 might apply to the situation that presents itself before you. Psalm 23 is the wonderful psalm about how our great shepherd leads us through trials. Listen to verse 4. The psalmist says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You see, the reason why the psalmist could walk through this valley of the shadow of death was not because he had everything figured out. It wasn't because he was stronger than the valley itself or because he was some sort of super faithful follower of, of the Lord. No, he says, I will fear no evil because you, my God, are with me in this valley. You are guiding me through it. And therefore, I have no fear because I trust that you are here with me. You see, the disciples and the psalmist and you and I alike face various trials in the forms of sorrow, suffering, anxiety, and unrest. But what we learn from this text is not that we will never experience the valley of the shadow of death, but when we experience it, we're, there is no cause for concern because our great shepherd is leading us and guiding us through. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we must press on and follow Jesus in our perplexing sorrow. Thankfully, there's more on this path than just sorrows. The next thing we see is that we're to follow Jesus in our abundant joy. Follow Jesus in abundant joy. Look at verse 20, and, uh, 20 through 22. Jesus says to his disciples, You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish or joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Now as we continue in our text, take notice here of the transformation of the emotional condition of his disciples that's going on here. Jesus is, is clear, again, he's not pulling punches, he's clear, you will experience anguish at what is to come, but God will use your suffering to bring joy from it. It's not as though their sorrow is somehow magically exchanged for joy, but as Charles Spurgeon said, the cause of their sorrow will now become the source of their rejoicing. The cause of the disciples' soon sorrow will become the source of their rejoicing. So too, for Jesus' disciples, 
the sorrow they were to experience was the horrific death of their friend and Lord. That would soon be the very reason why they had hope, though. The death of Christ was then and remains now to be the most wicked act in human history. There is nothing more devious, nothing more sinister, nothing more evil than the crucifixion of the sinless Lamb of God. He was the only man who ever lived who was truly innocent and did not deserve to die, yet he was betrayed, beaten, and hanged on a criminal's cross by ruthless men. He then went on to bear the full weight of the Father's wrath towards sin as he was judged and condemned in the place of sinners. Friends, if there's any cause for sorrow, it is the cross. Yet, at the same time, the cause of the disciples' sorrow would now become the source of their joy. To put it another way, the death of Christ would be precisely why the disciples, or what would be precisely what the disciples would soon boast about and proclaim to the world. Consider Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, whereby he states, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, Paul's sole mission was to proclaim the cross on which Jesus was crucified. Jesus illustrates this idea of sorrow now being the source of joy by likening his disciples' circumstances to a woman giving birth. Though she has temporary anguish when she is delivering her baby, after seeing the baby, she has abundant joy. In the same way, you too, my disciples, will undoubtedly experience sorrow. You cannot avoid it, but you must pass through it. However, after I am crucified, you will have joy when I see you face to face. Taken at face value, the illustration about a woman giving birth may seem rather peculiar to demonstrate what they're about to experience. I say peculiar because Jesus is at the table with 11 men, none of which who had ever or would ever give birth in their lifetime. So why would Jesus use this illustration to communicate what he means? This, is, this seems odd. What we don't see in the English is made clear in the Greek, and the word turn in the phrase, your sorrow will turn into joy, is the same root word used in verse 21 about a human being born into the world. In other words, Jesus is using this word to demonstrate the sorrow that the disciples are experiencing or would soon experience will quite literally give birth to joy. In other words, again, the cross is something that, that we look back on with dread and sorrow as we've reflected this morning with communion. However, it is the very reason why which you and I have any hope whatsoever. Uh, Charles Spurgeon also said of this text that at the foot of the cross, there wells up a flashing and sparkling fountain of joy which can never be dried up but must flow on forever. In summer and in winter shall it be, and none shall be able to keep us back from the living flood, but we shall drink to the full forever and ever. Friends, God is calling us to view our sorrow, to frame our sorrow and suffering in the exact same way a, mo a birthing mother experiences and views her sorrow, keeping our eyes fixed on the joy that lies on the other side, that will be brought forth as a result of this sorrow. Is it difficult? Absolutely. Painful? Without question. Wishing that anything else might be happening right now? Ab yes, of course. All the ladies who have given births can say amen. 
But however, just as she endures her trial, knowing the joy that is to be brought forth from it, we are to fix our eyes on the joy that is ours in Christ. Let us never forget that God is mighty enough to have the very cause and source of sorrow be the fountain through which your joy springs forth. This joy given to us who trust in Christ, as Jesus says, can never be taken from us because it does not depend upon us or our circumstances but it depends solely on what he has accomplished on our behalf and what he is doing in and through us today. Well, we've seen that we are to follow Jesus in our perplexing sorrow. We're also to follow him in abundant joy. As a result of those two realities, we are now to follow Jesus in bold confidence. Follow Jesus in bold confidence. Very quickly, let's look at verses 23 and 24. Jesus continues saying to his disciples, In that day, when I see you again, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give to you. But until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. So as I stated earlier, again, I think that Jesus is dealing with his coming death and resurrection. So I don't think for Jesus to say to his disciples, in that day you'll ask me nothing, means that all of a sudden your questions will be resolved and you'll never fear, you'll never have any doubts, and your faith will be flawless. I don't think he means that. Another translation says, in that day you will not question me about anything. So in other words, I think what Jesus is saying to his disciples is that when you, my disciples, see me resurrected from the dead, you will have bold confidence in me. This sorrow and confusion that you felt upon my impending crucifixion will now lead to bold confidence in exactly who I am. In other words, I can be trusted with your very lives. He says you will have confidence that I am God's promised serpent-crushing Savior who will deliver you from death. You will finally have the confidence and the rest and the certainty that you desired all along. We're tremendously blessed here to have Pastor Vince and Scott Engelman teaching our men's ministry here at our church. And one of the phrases that Scott has often used is this idea of believing loyalty. Those of you men who have continued to come to our men's ministry this uh, since the fall are familiar with this, but for those of you who aren't, there's basically two components to believing loyalty. There's believing and there's loyalty. The believing component is believing being trusting and committed that God alone is God, that there is none other but God. Yahweh is the most high God and there is none but him. That is the first pillar of this. The loyalty flows from this truth that God is God and that is because you are God, I will trust you no matter what. In other words, because you are my God and there is no other, I will trust you and I will remain loyal to you. This is not meaning that we will have a flawless faith, but a faith that remains loyal. It's a faith that says, God, even when I don't understand, even when I have questions, even when nothing in my life makes sense, I will remain loyal to you because you and you alone are God. Church, Jesus is abundantly clear in verse 23 that his Father's heart is towards us who believe in that whatever we ask of him, he will give it to us. 
Certainly, I don't think that Jesus is intending to communicate that if we say in the name of Jesus enough times that somehow it's some magic formula to getting whatever we want. No, I think what Jesus is saying is that once he accomplishes redemption on our behalf through his death, burial, and resurrection, we will now have direct access to God the Father and we can ask him whatever we want because we stand and rest upon what Christ has done. Because of what Christ has done, we who believe can now approach God without fear, without worry. Most importantly, we can approach him without the shame of our sin that causes us to often run and want to hide and cover up. We now can stand before God and say, this is who I am, Lord, and he will accept us. Not because of our works, but because of what his son has done. So Christian, let me ask, are you taking full advantage of what Christ has won for you? He has paved the way for us who believe by allowing us to experience total and complete forgiveness of our sins and cleansing of our shame. And as a result, we can now approach God with bold confidence on behalf of what Christ has accomplished. And this good news and hope of the gospel is that in Christ, our shame and our guilt are removed because Christ has died in our place and suffered God's wrath towards sin so that we who trust might be cleansed from our sin. But more, more than that, we might be able to now approach God without fear, without shame. That results from sin. And Christians, no longer does God deal with us on the basis of our sin, but now we can have bold confidence in approaching his throne. Therefore, we are to remember that we are to follow Jesus in bold confidence. Now, if you have not trusted in Christ this morning... The opposite is true for you. You ought to have no confidence to stand before him. When he comes again to judge, you will be like the world who wept and wailed upon seeing Christ coming in judgment. Frankly, you should be terrified of seeing the risen Lord. God will deal with you on the basis of your sin, and he will hold you accountable for every careless word you have spoken and every lawless deed ever done. If this is you this morning, do not delay, but come to Christ in faith and repentance. He will cleanse you from your sin. He will remove your guilt and shame that you might be able to stand before him saying, Hallelujah, praise God, and amen. You will be able to stand before him in bold confidence. Brothers and sisters, this Christian life is complicated. I don't think any of us would deny that. The Christian life is often paved with one of construction and roadblocks in the forms of trials and suffering, but there is joy. There is joy in knowing that Christ has loved us and redeemed us, knowing that he is God, knowing that he is guiding us through our trials and through our suffering, and knowing that we will soon see him again. Let us continue to pursue him until he calls us home through joy and sorrow, all with bold confidence in him. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.